Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 81 of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, your usual host for these things, and this time around, I've collected a ton of the best and worst questions that all you pinkers have posted underneath the last five or six podcasts for this, the big Q&A episode. So I've picked questions that range from the usual tech stuff, like what suspension fork works best for whatever, along with loads of other gear questions. But I've also included stuff about World Cup racing, standards, e-bikes, trail work, pro racers, traveling, and a bunch of other stuff. Is your question in here? Will I mispronounce your username? Maybe and probably. Although now that I have it all listed out, I bet we're not going to have enough time to go through all of these questions. I've got a ton of them, so maybe we're going to do a second Q&A podcast down the road. All right, if it were just me here, I don't think you'd be getting a serious answer to any of these questions, which is why I've got other mic here. Hey, Casimir, I've actually got a question for you to start this episode. So we get a ton of people on here asking us to recommend them a bike. I've always wondered, though, what would you recommend for me? You've known me for a long time now, over 10 years, I think. We've ridden together a bunch. You know the kind of mountain biking I like to do. Kaz, this is a Q&A episode. What's a good bike for me? Well, other than the Brody 8-Ball, because that's really what I enjoy seeing you on the most. Uh, I don't know. Maybe something like a specialized stump jumper. Remember, light, I, used to ha- quick. I feel like I used to have one of those. Yeah, I think I'd still recommend it. I think you probably I'd like to get it. it back. Oh, yeah, it's gone. Oh. <laughs> All gone. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of bike I see you on. And that one has like a little more travel. It's not full on XC. I know you like those little short travel ones, but you're getting older and you need some more cushion. So yeah. like the 120, 130 zone is probably pretty good for you. Yeah. I picture you on something like the Norco Shore if I had to recommend a bike for you. Is that I would have, I, Yeah, but not my only bike. I would need two bikes, like a Shore and a Spur, and then I'd be super happy. Right. Yeah, right. that'd be okay. my deal. All right. Well, we've also got a special guest with us for episode 81. Richard Cunningham is back from flying his homemade plane in the desert or whatever the heck he's been up to in his spare time. RC, what have you been up to since we talked last? Have you been riding? Have you been flying? Are you ready to answer endless pinker questions? Uh, a lot of flying and a pretty good, pretty good chunk of riding. I was doing great until I closed all the national forests. And the the lands around my where I live, for fires, it's closed all September. So I'll be I'll be back at it, um, and doing the long rides when they when they open up the gates. But yeah, all right. for deference. But yeah, still riding, and uh, I'm all bloody right now. I went through a new line and and uh, took an inside line, and and in Southern California, the bushes don't um, don't give you anything <laughs> except for blood. Our seat. Never go on the inside line in the desert. <laughs> yeah. Never. <laughs> I should know that by now. Yeah. So James Smurthwaite isn't with us today, but it would be weird to do a pink pod without a posh English accent on the show. So you know who I've got, Henry Quinney. Henry is going to be back next week as well for the big field test podcast. But he's ready to answer some questions. Henry, are you excited to answer some Pinker questions? I'm excited to do my best. I mean, I don't know what I haven't actually. I'm kind of going in blind. That's I'm not the way really I like the it. Script, yeah. So I don't know what's going to be out there, but let's do it. I'm, I'm actually let's do it. It'll be, it'll be good. Hopefully, okay. get some sense out of me. Yes. All right. But 
Before we get to that, we have to do news. James isn't here, like I said. That means it's Casimir. Take it away, Kaz. All right. Well, we're kind of wrapping up the race season, and it seems like they're trying to pack as many races as possible in these last few weeks. So last week, we had a doubleheader in the EWS, and Jack Marr won the first race, and then Richie Rude won the second. It's kind of nice to see some good battles going on there. I think Jack actually hurt his shoulder for the second one, so Richie won, but wasn't quite the even battle it could have been. Uh, Jesse Melamid got second place in that second race. And uh, what's his name? Slowermere. How do you say his name? Anyone know? Slowermere Lukasik, that privateer. He got fourth place in that second race. So wow. pretty cool to see that guy coming up in, in the ranks like without full factory support. So good job. Slavomir. that's how you say it. I knew I saw him say it on a video once. So good job, Slavomir. in everyone's faces when you said, because anyone know how to pronounce it. And we all just were like, well, I died. <laughs> Kaz, this was the doubleheader event, mm -hmm. I think. Did they use, did they race on the same tracks? Yes, I think so. I should pay more attention to these things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure they do, right? They couldn't just do it. No, they advertised yeah. it. They advertised it as two different, two different courses, but it was all in the same Maybe, area. Uh, the, okay. The Pink Bike Podcast, everybody, not scripted. <laughs> not scripted. We're live. Research. <laughs> There's so many races, I couldn't keep track of all of them. I just looked at results and I didn't even like watch much of it. So sorry for people. I usually follow racing more closely, but um these ones kind of sl slipped under the radar but we also had melanie pujan got first place and morgan shara got second place in the second of the races and the, the first of the races isabel couturier got first and morgan shara got second so these double headers i feel like they make a ton of sense so let me i'll preface this by saying surprisingly i know nothing about organizing a race <laughs> but the doubleheader makes so much sense. You guys are already at this location. The trails are there. All the staff is there. I know there's all sorts of complications with people keeping people there long enough and all that stuff. And it's not free to host these races, of course. There's all sorts of things that we're not talking about. But doesn't the doubleheader make sense? I want to see more racing. Imagine if we had like 12 events a year. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, I think with the double header though, one of the reasons that some of these results slipped past me is because that races the races are happening on Wednesdays oh. for some of them. So I wish the double headers were just two weekends back to back. Because you know it's a weekend, so you can kind of like have a little more time to check it out. But these ones yeah. they'll be like like tomorrow is or today's qualifying as we're recording this, it's qualifying for World Cup racing tomorrow, Wednesday. So it'd be kind of nice if they just split the double header as two weekends back to back. Yeah, that's why I didn't see much about it. I usually take the week off, like Monday to Friday, I take off. <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> Levy, Levy works on Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. <laughs> Don't tell him yeah. my secret. <laughs> so yeah, so EWS racing happened. Um, it's just nice to have more racing, even though I might have missed some of it. Um, and like I mentioned, Snowshoe World Cup is underway. And one of the big news items that's already come out of that is Mick Hanna is going to be retiring after these races. Mick's been on the scene for seems like 40 years now, but he's kind of in the same boat as, um, as Greg Marr and that, you know, the last 20 years has been just always in the mix. So kind of the end of a, end of a portion of an era for him. So big news. Let's see, Henry, did you, you knew Mick decently well? Did you? Yeah, I worked with Mick at Polygon. Yeah. He's just such a nice guy, you know, like, I know he was, yeah, he's very calm. He's just, he's been there. He's done it. And he's just, he loves riding his bike, you know? And that's such a good influence to have around. And 
I've got a lot of time for that man. I think he's just a really good guy. He's very articulate. His ideas about setup are both, you know, on point and often he's not afraid to think differently. And um, yeah, he's just, he just, he's just such a nice guy. I know that sounds like yeah. the thing that everyone says, but I just got loads and loads of respect for him and working with him was just was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's cool. In like the last few seasons or handful of seasons, he just started tossing no handers all the time, no matter what. Yeah. He turned it into his like signature move, which is great. Like if you're not, you know, he kind of, I think realized he wasn't going to win some of these races. So might as well put on a show for the crowd. Well, and he, he told me about apparently um, he, the first one he did was Lords, I think 2017. Mm-hmm. And he was coming into it and he apparently said he didn't have a great run. And like joking before, someone had said, like, oh yeah, you should just do a suicide no hander. So we just did one in his race one and he was just, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. He's just yeah. he's just a he's just a good dude, Mick. I've got a lot of time for him. Yeah, so that's good. It'll be interesting to see what he does next. But uh, yeah, congrats on a, a long, long career, Mick. Um, we also had, moving from racing to a little more in the, the slope style scene, we had Semenuk dropped another video that was wild. He did so many things. Levy tried to name some of the tricks and he had some good I, names for the tricks. <laughs> he did some sweet whirly birds, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen it, there's a course that he kind of made with all kinds of features. There's a big satellite dish and he does like a, a downside foot plant, something or other out of the satellite dish. Like it's so many, like a lot of subtle, very difficult tricks. It's super cool to watch that. It it was unreal how smooth he is. And like, we all, we know this, the shit is not easy. Like we know it's impossible. Let's just say it. We know what he's doing is impossible, but when you watch him do it, he makes it look possible not for us, just for him, but he makes it look possible and like he's just just chill about it. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just tossing in like little extra elements, you know, like he'll be doing a three, but then he's somehow like whether it's a foot plant or like a looked like a foot jam, like in his front tire. And yeah, just like the little extra bit that's like, oh, someone did a three, that's cool. But then he does the extra thing that makes it extra hard and crazy. It's good. I'm sure Brandon is listening to this. He doesn't miss any pink bike podcast. So Brandon <laughs> That was amazing. <laughs> Shoot me a text. Let's get you on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, he streams it right into his rally car as he as he drives. He likes to listen to our podcast. Yeah. It helps him. <laughs> he just wants to know the news that was on Pink Bike last week. Yeah, yep. wants to keep up with the EWS racing. Yeah, right. who won? Uh... <laughs> and the field test. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think Semenuk is is an unusual is an unusual performer in that when you see that how how careful he is in, when he's in competition. He does every single move. He doesn't waste any, anything. He'll trick every single feature. If, even if there's a, it gets his front wheel off the ground and he's like looking, there's two points here. There's five points there. There's three points there. And he's just precise when he's in competition. But when he started doing his videos, oh my God. I mean, it was like, we got to see the inside of the man that was just the, the, the ultimate professional. And he's the artist aspect of Semenuk is just, it's mind blowing when you see him riding as if, you know, on his own, in his own world, under, you know, in his own mind, in his own creativity. It is one of the most spectacular things I've seen. Even if you never rode a bike, if you watch Semenuk doing his, these videos, it's, it's just beautiful. It's poetry in motion. Yep. I'm with you there. I always liked in the when he was competing when he would sometimes if he'd flub a flub a run, knew he wasn't gonna win and just kinda or if he did win and just do his like chill like style run where he knew he didn't have to do his tricks anymore. That was always my favorite. Just watching him like lazy big whips and just little cool tricks. Like I like that better than the full flippy spinny thing. 
I once heard a thing about how with like, I'm going off on tangent, but I'll come back to with like ballroom dancing. Once they started scorecarding it, it got so grotesque because everyone was doing these horrible smiles and these really weird, like exaggerated and kind of in a way subjective scoring on what like the bike riding with Seminuk, it can be like an art form, right? And when you throw it in a competition, sometimes it kind of loses that. It becomes the bit more grotesque and a bit like kind of packing everything in. Then you see the free form on the video and it just feels like it's so much more a genuine expression. Yeah, I agree. So if anyone hasn't watched that video, go watch it. It's worth it. And then I guess the final bit of news that you probably did not miss. Yeti launched an e-bike this week after tons of teasers. And I think they even had the ad for the e-bike up the day before the e-bike actually launched. So that's out there. That was amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So it's the Yeti 160E. It's in the field test. So we'll be talking about that more. We do our field test podcast. But yeah, they're kind of one of the last... There's only a few more smaller mid-sized brands that don't have an e-bike out there, I guess. Who who doesn't have an e-bike, Kaz? Um, like who doesn't have one coming? Because that no, no, no. Who doesn't currently have one is what I'm asking you, Kaz. <laughs> Put your foot in it, Kaz. Why don't you? Get the other one. Yeah, well, I mean, like that's the thing. Like if you look, I I would say there's probably no company that's around the same size as as Yeti that doesn't have one coming. Oh, uh, there is. Yeah, I, Ibis doesn't have one yet. They might have one, but they don't have one now. Right. I think, in a, yeah, on the way, like. <laughs> they're going to, everybody has to have one. Let's just say it. Like they yeah, basically exactly. have to. Yeah. yeah. They're going to have to. Yeah. It's been a fun thing over the last couple of years. Every time, you know, a brand has an e-bike coming, but it's not out yet. Like with this is like, I don't know, a brand a couple of years ago, you say, you bump into someone, you say, can I just say fair play for sticking to your guns? And not bringing out an e-bike under any circumstance. <laughs> really, the last bastion of non-e-bike riding, knowing they've got an e-bike coming out in like two. Yeah. And they're just like, yeah. oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Really appreciate that. Really doing it. <laughs> so. Henry, we should, let's just talk about that Yeti for just a minute or two before we get into this, all the Q&A stuff. You rode the Yeti. Yes. You liked the Yeti. So far, so good. What's the next? <laughs> I feel like you set me up for something. Go on, Mike. Well, I mean, the Yeti is expensive. If you look at the comments underneath the field no. test review and the our first look at the thing, a lot of people were taken aback by how expensive it is. Yeah, it's outrageously expensive. You know, uh, but it's not, I want to say something. You know, what? yeah, yeah, I it is expensive, so. but it's actually. Like it was funny because before it came out, there were some of those like spy shots or whatever. When people were like, "I bet this is gonna be twenty thousand dollars." Let's take bets, and then the whole thread like derailed into people guessing how expensive it would be. And then it comes out, and it's actually less expensive than the specialized e-bikes by a yeah. fair bit, like three grand less. But okay, but hear me out, right? It has the same motor as the common cell. So how how does the where does it come from? We know the you carbon can frame buy the non-consumer direct business model. Yeah, I know, but come on, Kaz. There's like. There's a little bit, and then there's like six grand's worth. Like, yeah, I mean, but the thing is, I bet they're sold out right now. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, would, I'm I no guarantee. So it's like that's the thing when people are complaining so much about price. Like, I don't want bikes to be expensive, but also I don't complain when the new Ferrari comes out and it costs a hundred thousand, whatever. You know, it's like it costs a lot more than yeah. that, Cats. <laughs> you can't get one for hundred grand. Last year's model, no, you can't. <laughs> no, damn it. My Ferrari prices are way off. I got to recalibrate. <laughs> are they a million dollars? How much is a Ferrari? So, yeah, some of them are. Yeah, oh, cool. So see, it doesn't make me mad. I'm just like, oh, well, I can't ever have that. So um, I don't know. I think that the, I think it's good to hold companies to the fire and try to like push for more affordable models and things. But I also think it's when there is a whole new 
bike that comes out, especially one of the motor when people are like losing their mind, like bikes aren't this much like, well, it has a motor. So when you compare it to bikes without motors, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's worth, it's worth what people are willing to pay. Yeah. That's, and they're there to make money. That's the thing that we shouldn't be uncomfortable with. Yeah. Oh my God. They they want to make a profit. Scum. Like, of course. (laughs) What are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's why Commissal exists. There are both sides, which is good. And I think it, and we try to like cover both, but, um, but it is always funny. Like, I just think the amount of rage that people hold for high prices, that's what I'm actually entertained by it because if that's how you're spending your day, it seems like you're going to have a heart attack Not or high day, blood just like 10 minutes. They're on the internet a lot. I see them all day, every day. Yeah. Like, I feel like they're constantly, I don't know. Either way, I, I'm not denying that it's a very expensive bike and most people shouldn't buy this bike, but the ones that have the funds, it's a, it's a good bike. Like it works well and you can you know, read the field test and we'll talk about it more, but. All right. Well, that is it for news. And that means there's nothing left to do but to get into all these questions. There are about 200 of them. Some are tech, some aren't. Uh, Another reminder first, if you want your question answered in a future episode, you got to post it under the podcast and I might get to it. Maybe. So the questions that we're going to ask here are kind of all over the place. I haven't organized them or anything. But I'm going to try to read them verbatim. We'll see how that goes. So our first question, this is from Raw Bike Rider. This one's about rear suspension. All right, guys, he says, are high-end shocks like the Push 11.6 and EX Storia worth the money? Or he wants to know, would would he be better off spending that money on getting a lower budget option, custom-tuned or upgraded? Uh, Casimir. Um, I don't even, it's an interesting question because he forgot about just sticking with the regular stock, like nice suspension. He wants to either go like budget and upgrade it or super high end, but the middle is really a a nice place for, I'd say the vast majority of riders like the, but if you are searching for something, you know, more custom or something, you know, kind of tuned to meet a specific need that you have, I think those higher end companies do offer, you know, offer a product that can do that. You're already going to pay, you know, 400 to $600 more than you would on a standard standard shock um yeah like the story is a nice shock i've ridden that i've ridden the push they're great but it's also not like i hop on a bike with a super deluxe or an x2 and say oh this bike it really needs a push that's exactly what it needs so um yeah i think there there's nothing wrong with you know putting nice custom tuned suspension on your bike if that's a path you want to go down and you think you'll notice a difference i think it's good yeah if you have the money i would say if you have the money and you want that cool stuff it's pretty neat but Rear suspension with the with the leverage involved. A lot of times, like going to a higher end shock, it doesn't make like a massive difference, does it? Yeah, I would say that it's easier to ride whether it's ride around or just to kind of like put the performance or rear shock in the background. It's a lot easier to do that than compared to a fork. Like a high end fork versus a budget fork, I think makes more much more of a difference than a super high end shock versus a more budget shock. Right, right. I think that the big question here is. If has this person gone on back-to-back runs and just spun the dials of his existing suspension all the way right or all the way left, and then experimented with tuning this, you know, you basically spring this the top out, bottom outs with um, with spacers until you've done all that stuff, you have no business spending a twelve or thirteen hundred or sixteen hundred dollars on a shock to to expect performance. I mean, really, you need to know where your starting point is and how good your existing suspension can be before you make that decision. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's also exactly to continuing on from that point, 
if that person hasn't got the current stuff, you know, maximized, then there's no guarantee they'll set up the new one right either. Yeah, exactly. And I've done even I reviewed the story a, a couple of years ago now, and I did back to back runs with the Marzoki, which is basically just the uh, the Fox DHX. So like the basic entry level coil shock. And there at the time, a lot of people were like, why'd you do that? You should compare it to something else. But I wanted to see for my own just personal sake how big that difference was and like there was there was a difference like i did find the story to be better than that more budget shock i could also it wasn't like i wasn't riding anything i didn't feel like i was faster i wasn't riding any differently just there's little you know more tuning options with the higher end ones usually but so yeah if you want to buy that shock go for it but um whether it's worth the money is totally up to you and your your bank account basically yep all right next question henry this one is from for you Nope. It's from it's from PB user everything's coming up Millhouse. I like the old Simpsons. I love words. I love I love that name. Cool. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. He says he really likes hearing about all the crazy endurance, fitness, sadism stuff that people get up to on their bikes. He says, Henry, you are an animal in particular. Oh, Multiple Everest, uh, FKMs, probably a bunch of other stuff. So he wants to know. What's the one thing you've done on the bike that stands yeah. out as being the hardest physically and mentally? Uh, oh, that's a good one. Oh, shit. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's just such a... I can't answer that question. There have been so many little things that have been like, hard for me. But then like, I look at some of the things that other people do. And I realize that, like, honestly, for me, I'm just like, it's absolute chicken shit compared to them. <laughs> so I feel I feel a bit uncomfortable being like, that was super hard for me because I've, no, I've done nothing like. It was hard for you, bike. though. Stop, stop, stop playing. It was hard for you. Tell me. You know, I tell you what, the thing that first comes to mind was probably um, I struggle with the heat mm-hmm. and getting heat stroke, like, you know, literally twice in one day sort of thing. And having to ride the next day has been like, you know, when you just hallucinating, like when, like, you know, I've literally lost, I, I didn't know who I was once. <laughs> I didn't know where I was. Um, that, that what ride was that on, hard. Henry? What ride was that on? That was on a road bike ride, actually. Oh. I was, I was a young man who thought I was a right riding bikes and got my ass absolutely handed to me <laughs> as I tried to break the end-to-end record in New Zealand many years ago. And um, Did you break it? Yeah. No. Yeah. He mentioned this person, this rider, when you said FKM, I know that he meant uh, FKT, so fastest known mm. time. What was your, do you have one of those somewhere in New Zealand? Yeah, or yeah, I got the South, I believe the fastest time to ride the South Island in New Zealand. Nice. That's um, cool. Yeah, it was, it was, that, it was a good, it was a good bloody ride that. I had a tremendous time. I enjoyed it immensely. Had some great friends come along with me in the sport vehicle. And um, ultimately. Support vehicle. Yeah, man. I went full like. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I went full, full, <laughs> yeah, full, um, full setup. It was an amazing trip and I really enjoyed it. And I think it's sometimes really good to really suck at something you want to be really good at and it keeps you humble. And, uh, that certainly humbled me a lot. What, what do you struggle more with in those sorts of moments, mental or physical challenge? Oh, um, obviously I they're think, tied together too. Yeah. I think mental the only mental challenge, it's going to sound like I know what I'm talking about, but it's just a knockoff, like probably like, you know, YouTube brand of Buddhism, but like the only thing you need to focus on is just accepting it. That's the only mental challenge there is. As soon as you can accept things, then they'll just melt away. 
That's what I've been doing wrong. <laughs> yeah, man. Like you can't fight it. Sometimes you're gonna be. It's gonna be shit. Sometimes you're gonna have a horrible time. Yeah. But if you're anxious about that, it's gonna be ten times worse. You just say, you know what? Today life has dealt me one heck of a shit sandwich, and I'm just gonna eat it. <laughs> All right. And that's how it is. That's advice from Henry Quinney. Okay, our next question. This one is gonna go to RC. This is from. Pinkbike user, sorry, I am the boss. <laughs> I don't think I've mispronounced any of these names yet. So this guy, he says he's a Brit who wants to take a trip in the U.S. And RC, this is what his question. If you had to choose one place to spend a week mountain biking in America, where would it be? Would you go for the absolute best trails or would you go somewhere with good trails but interesting scenery? Wow. Well, there'd be two places. One is definitely the Southwest. I mean, you got to hit, you got to hit the Moab, you know, that it's just that whole area, Moab, um, down by, um, by the green river and stuff. It's just, it's just everything. There's trails that go forever. The weather is guaranteed. If you get there, you know, when it's not summertime to be perfect. And it's such a challenge. I mean, the views are, are perfect. But it's all natural terrain. I mean, it's it's all man-made trails, but the terrain's natural. And that's what I love the most. But this Bellingham would be my next choice. If you wanted to go and, and get the best curated, man-made, big jumps, kind of Northwest experience, you wanted to stay in the United States and you know, not, not get the A complex, um, Bellingham's the number two spot. Really. There's no other. If you're going to pick two places and spend all your money, that's it. Kaz? You live in Bellingham. What would you say? Don't come here? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the selfish part of me does would say that, but the uh, non-selfish part, it, it's pretty ridiculously good here. And it's a, it's a big enough place. There's plenty riding for everybody. So it's, it's a good, good mix. I think we have, um, yeah, there's fun, you know, kind of more cross country trails, but then also jumps as big as you want and things as gnarly as you want, which is, that's one of the reasons I like living here. Cause I can really mix it up pretty easily. Um, yeah, but also I might, I agree with with um, with RC on the the Southwest, just like visiting Moab or Sedona or somewhere like that. It's just so different, especially if you're coming from the UK. Like that's going to be, yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm guarantee there's nothing like that over in England. <laughs> so, um, but don't come in the summer, which is one mistake I've seen people make before. A lot of people just fly over for a nice July trip to Moab. You'll die. Like you'll <laughs> get casual August in Sedona. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like 500 <laughs> degrees. It's like going to Mars. So especially if you're pasty white Brit, like you're gonna die. So don't go in the summertime. <laughs> Because I uh, I was in Sedona for a press camp one time. It was either June or July. It was for a Trek press camp. And we did this ride. It was supposed to be two rides. And the first ride was going to like, well, it was one ride that sort of like we met up again in a parking lot with there's some food and all this stuff. And I roll into this parking lot. It It was roughly 200 Celsius. And I roll into this parking lot and people are like laying on the ground under vans and stuff like that. Like... Nobody did the rest of the ride. <laughs> it yeah. was so hot. <laughs> yeah, but fall and spring, even like early winter, desert southwest, it's a good place. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Casimir, this one's for you. This is from M. Gambit. He wants to know, first of all, can you tell me what the O-Chain is? Secondly, he wants to know why an O-Chain is a better option than having a lower engagement hub. I'm learning here too, everybody. Kaz, tell me. The, the O-chain is a mechanism that mounts onto your, it's a spider mount, basically a chain ring that has 
using elastomers to kind of take out, it allows it to rotate. So when there's chain, when your chain is pulling on it, it allows it to rotate a little bit. Um, so that should minimize the amount of pedal kickback that you get. Um, and so we were starting to see that on the world cup circuit. I, I do think it, it has a place, but I've also seen it show up on some bikes where it shouldn't be necessary at all. Like I saw, I'm pretty sure maybe Loris Vergier has it on his, uh, either equipped session, which seems very strange. Like, I don't think that's going to do anything except maybe add some weight. So, um, but as far as a lower engagement hub it should, let's see, it's hard to put these things into words. Sometimes I think that this should have a more immediate effect. Like if you're getting that chain, the chain tug, as you're hitting a bump with your rear wheel, um, it's going to pull on this and it'll minimize that where your hub, it'll kind of depend where you are in the engagement of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think you could, you could accomplish a similar thing though with a low engagement hub, but then you also have the, yeah, I don't know. Actually, I think I'm talking to myself. Sorry. Henry. I think it's, it's also got to do with the fact that, and I'm going to say some words that sound like science, even though we all need to accept that I don't, I don't know the science words, but when your free hub is, spinning your the amount of ratchet teeth you change won't really have an effect on it because it's actually about the acceleration delivered at the contact patch and so basically for that to make an effect it would have to then accelerate faster than the current speed of the free hub say if you're cruising down a trail at 20 kilometers an hour you'd have to have a huge input of speed at the contact patch to then to actually make the do you see what i mean to actually engage the ratchet to then yeah. change the feedback on the so basically I don't think the ratchet changed the feedback at the cranks like a lot of people think it does. And the O-chain will actually be better at isolating the forces because it's not um, not relevant to the speed you're going and the acceleration the wheel's undergoing. There you go. That's what I was trying to say. You said it better than me. So yeah, basically, because that's slower. This should work at all speeds, basically. With yes. Slow speeds yes, high speeds it. where yeah. with your low engagement hub, it will accomplish a similar thing, but you have to be going at certain speeds. So if you like crept off a drop to flat, your low engagement hub is still not going to help you and you may feel some pedal kickback. Pedal kickback is one of those things that I feel like it's hyped up more than it needs to be in a lot of cases, but um, this thing is catching on and, and people that have used it do have you know positive things to say. So on certain bike designs, it could be helpful. Okay, next question. This is for all you guys. This is from Rusky Skier 27 He says, when it comes to testing and producing product reviews for products besides complete bikes... Surely you have many things that you're testing simultaneously. What is your strategy for reviewing when you go out on rides, when you inevitably have a new tire, set of brakes, drivetrain, hanging off a test bike with deadlines approaching for all three? Do you focus on a different product for each ride or do you simply ride and then reflect on your experience with each product after the fact? Henry's already got his hand up. Take it so away, Henry. Levy, Levy who's Simon Tamously? <laughs> he's a well-known he's a well-known british comedian simultaneously showing oh simultaneously oh yeah, yeah. never heard of him <laughs> i thought you had your hand up to answer the damn question <laughs> someone take it i mean i could i could start with this one um yeah usually when it just depends what i'm working on like this person mentioned that they, you might have deadlines approaching for all three so you know I do have a, a test bike that tends to have a bunch of different stuff, but a lot of it is just more about putting miles on. So there's your initial impressions when you go out, get it set up and I'll kind of take notes on whatever that item is. And then it's just riding and kind of forgetting about it really. And then as the time to um, write the article or review about it approaches, then I'll start focusing in on, on that. So I might, you know, 
go out for a ride and do some different conditions or some different time lapse, whether it's tires or, or just really focus on the shifting or suspension performance, do some back-to-back stuff. So, um, so yeah, a lot of my rides are just riding just to ride and, and durability test basically and see if anything weird happens. And then as it comes closer to the deadline, uh, then I start honing in on whatever that product is. RC, how do you do that? Well, there's the magic hour, you know, it's, this is going to sound really pompous, but after you've ridden a whole bunch of bikes within an hour, you know, whether it's gonna, you're going to be happy with it or it's going to suck for some reason. So after the magic hour, really just like Cass says, you're, you're just unpacking. So to answer the first question, say I was going to talk about the bike review came up first, but then I just think about what's happening. You know, what I like about the bike in the first hour. Because that shows you, wow, it doesn't turn like I'm used to, but that's not bad. And you know, the rear end's chattering, but and the front end's super smooth. And you basically, after the first hour, you have an idea of what you're working with. And then you use the next, like, 10 hours of riding to unpack. So you change the suspension, see if you can fix the rear end, uh, wonder what the geometry or wheel size is making it turn in better than you expected or faster. And after that, you pretty much have the article written in your head and it's just durability. So after that, you think about, well, am I going to talk about these tires? Let's, let's push these tires really hard and, or go through the mud. And, and the rest is just unpacking the components. And then you have three stories to do. So really, it's the magic hour and then the unpacking time. Kaz, how important is it to have a, like one bike you're familiar with and maybe you have it for all of the year or most of the year and put stuff on like say you have a fork review you need to do you need to put that fork on a bike that you're familiar with like you can't if you're reviewing a bike you're not going to put a different test fork on that bike basically is my point right yeah typically that bike kind of stays in its its configuration at least long enough to get that review going but then that is why yeah most of us have a a one one bike or a couple bikes that we use throughout the year as our kind of like frame of reference just it's also a lot easier too if i have to install a drivetrain on a bike i'd rather be on a bike i'm gonna have around for a while instead of one that needs to go back to the the manufacturer pretty soon so um because these test bikes we do send them back when we're done so if i have one i don't have to send back that's a lot easier just for me and uh and then for comparisons too mm-hmm. right okay i think this next question is also from rusky skier 27 rc i'm gonna throw this at you he asked, does anyone reflect on the state of mountain biking and e-bikes impact on mountain biking and trail use in 10, 15, or 20 years? So RC, if you had to guess 20 years from now, so let's let's say right now 80% of mountain bikes on trails are normal mountain bikes, 20% are e-bikes, just to pick a number. I'm sure that's wrong. It's going to be different everywhere. 20 years from now, how do you see that looking? Okay, that's a big question. Because we have two things going on yep. right now. We have two rivers that are that are going into the same stream. The first river is actually a small one, but it's the one everybody talks about. And those are the $13,000 uh, made-by-bike company mountain bikes. So I am assuming right now, and I'm going to say this, that most of the people that are buying these bikes have been curated mountain bikers. They're people that come from our sport. They already are used to high prices and fancy carbon this, and they understand, at least they believe, what anti-squad is. And so that's that's one stream that's going into the trail system. But if you go online and you say, I want to buy an e-bike, you get mostly um, 
what what I would call the the, the mainstream e-bikes. They're not as expensive. Almost every single one of them uh, the, has an unusual look. Maybe they're twenty inch, twenty six inch wheel uh, fat tire bikes. They tend to have more power than we would consider legal. And almost everyone that you see, if when you're when you're looking at Amazon and and that stuff, you're they actually have a throttle as well. And so we would consider those not really e bikes. But if you're a forest ranger or you're a land manager. You know, you don't, you haven't gone to a class that says how to tell which is in, you know, category one or blah, 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 blah. So that's the second stream that's coming in. And right now, there's not enough, even though they're very popular, they're most, B bikes are the biggest sellers and they're going to be for a while in the mountain bike industry. There's really not enough to say, to hit the saturation point. So now, when those two streams fill up the trails to whatever the saturation point is, uh, say five, five years from now, we don't have to go out to 10 years or whatever. Then we're going to have a lot of motorized vehicles on, on uh, backcountry trails. And we're going to have mountain bikers that pedal as well. But the most, the ones that are going to be doing, are going to be the most visible, will probably be the motorized ones at that, at this time. And I say that that's going to be the point when we hit saturation where the questions of whether land access in the backcountry is cool for motorized bicycles or should we mo- should we monitor monitor them as a separate entity and i think the answer is going to be absolutely yes when the fun's over and there's lots of people on the trails and we can actually make a, a scientific decision on it we're going to see some separation and rightly so i mean 10 miles an hour doesn't seem like a high speed, but 10 miles an hour, is, if you're really cranking on, a, on an e-bike, is about as slow as you're going to ever go uphill, around the trails. I mean, I when I started riding e-bikes, I was shocked that I was back in my motorcycle days, I was braking before the corners at the top of the uphills so I wouldn't get negative Gs and start sliding. I thought, well, that's something I don't do when I'm pedaling around. And, and so tra- the nature of trails... Uh, we as pedal bikers assume that downhill trails are downhill trails and uphill trails are uphill trails. But in five years, that won't be the case. People will be flying on the uphills and using the berms. Sounds like trouble, RC. And it is. And the, and the conflicts that we're going to see are which is really uphill and which is really downhill and, and uh, how far and how intimate the trail networks are are going to be allowed for bicycles that people don't get tired on. Do you, do you think, though, that new e-bike riders are just going to be riding up downhill trails? I don't, I don't see that happening in the Pacific Northwest, but that might be because, uh, because our downhill trails are so obviously intended to be ridden only in that direction. I think that what you're... Yeah, I, mean, what you're I mean, obviously, some downhill trails you can't go up. But. Well, there's in Squamish, there's... There's trails that if you don't ride down, you have to throw your bicycle down and find a way to hike around to get your bicycle and continue on the rides. Obviously, we're not talking about those trails. We're talking about, you know, the flow trails that everybody thinks are downhill trails. They're not anymore. But but we're also, to you, Levy, you're still talking about people that understand the rules and have been mountain bikers before. I'm talking about people that have, that come off of the motorcycle world or an outside the industry that suddenly have uh, 
trail network open to them and a bicycle that they can explore them on, the first thing you're want, going to want to do is explore everything. Here's a question to the group. And I say this as a, as a recovered gatekeeper, you know, <laughs> I'm still a gatekeeper, is, everybody. Don't worry. Yeah. I, I just honestly, man, like I've done some gatekeeping in my time. Um, now I just don't, I just, I just willfully just don't care, <laughs> but is gatekeeping ever appropriate? And, or is it just a load of sanctimonious, self-righteous Ooh. BS? That's an entire podcast. Oh, okay, cool. Well, let's do that next week. The big, the big debate. Are we sanctimonious bees? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll take that one because if, if anybody's going to get blamed for being a sanctimonious gatekeeper, it's me. You know, <laughs> but you know, there's a there's all there's two levels of. Gatekeeping. I don't know. I think I think that's been leveled at me before too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the accent, the accent helps you make a next level of sanctimonious. <laughs> yeah, it ups the poshness. <laughs> but you know, what you, what you guys just don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you this. No, there's, there's a, there, you should mention if you can project what house sports go into the future. And it's easy to do if you've been part of the a building sports. I mean, I started with motorcycles. We're all converted dirt bikes, but you could, it's one thing you should probably say, Hey, these are the things that you might look for in the future because it's happened three times before and we're human. And that's gatekeeping, I think, in, in, the, in the best possible way. But, you know, once the sport's moving, you got to step aside and say, hey, you have to learn this lesson on your own and let's see where it goes. Maybe I'm wrong, right? What the hell? I've actually got a pretty funny gatekeeping story. So <laughs> when I saw it for a YouTube channel, they had an e-bike, an e-bike branch as well. And they said, Henry, we know you don't like e-bikes, right? Can we do a video called Can We Convert a Hater? And I said, sure, I'll come along. And then they recorded the conversation about this guy, a guy called Steve Jones, an amazing journalist, really cool guy and very impassioned man saying, basically he was, we just had a conversation about my views on e-bikes. And after we'd been recording for half an hour, the guy that's filming says, I'm sorry, this isn't it. Henry, you're really going to have to put your foot on the pedal here and really just go full, full ball and just be like, you know, like, like literally like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, just really just give him shit and so there i am like i don't think it was proper like reality tv it was awful i don't think that and they were like that is perfect i was assuming they'd use some finesse in the editing no they didn't <laughs> so you just look like a massive so dick I just look like the biggest ass i literally had hate mail like well in mail but on instagram people would find my person on instagram and be like you are, you're a turd and here's why and it went on an e-biking only channel and it was Absolutely. I mean, it's hilarious because it was just like, oh God, <laughs> like um, gatekeeping Henry, to the extreme. It sounds like you got set up to be the fall guy. I mean, listen, I mean, it's true. I mean, I think we live in a strange world where people would rather, you know, make their mountain bike ride finish 20 minutes sooner than they go home, look at pictures of mountains on Instagram and listen to a wellness podcast. For me, I'm just like, <laughs> spend time outdoors. It's beautiful. Like, you don't, it was the rush, but maybe that's just me. Yeah, but the flip side of that, see, for me, that's where I take hope is that I believe that most people in the world are inherently lazy. So even if they buy these $12,000 magical e-bikes, they're only going to go out for like an hour and then they're gone. Yeah. So for us that can go out for, you know, us gatekeepers that can go out for multiple hours, whether we're on a regular bike or an e-bike, we're going to be out for longer. We're going to go farther because we're spoiled and we've been working on this for many years. So I don't worry too much about the people getting into it 
you know, ruining my experience or whatever. It's like, they're going to have a good time. They're going to be fine. And then they're going to go home. Maybe I need to up the gatekeeping. I might just go from door to door knocking. Have you heard the news? And they say, <laughs> what? And I say, the new 900 watt hour battery is going to destroy mountain biking. <laughs> <laughs> you can stand on a street corner and squat with a sign <laughs> over your head. <laughs> okay. 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 Let's let's keep it on batteries for a second. Our next question is also an e-bike question. There are plenty more that aren't e-bike questions coming up. This one is from More Stage Dives. What will happen when e-bike motors and batteries are out of warranty and need replacing in a few years? Who will want to pay two thousand bucks for a motor on a five or six year old e-bike? Will there still be compatible parts for manufacturers? What will happen to those bikes and those batteries? <laughs> Somebody take it. Yeah. I, mean, I got this one. <laughs> All you have to do is look at the Prius. When people realized how expensive the battery was going to be, they just started selling them at a certain rate. And basically with the Prius, it's two, two and a half to three years maximum. And they go to taxi cabs and the taxi cabs run them into the ground and then they just disappear. Like what happens to Toyotas? And Lexuses, when they get old, you never see them on the street. I think there's like this underworld from Toyota and they send them all to like South Africa or something for more taxis. But that's what's going to happen is people are going to get smart on that really fast, just like their phones. And they're going to sell them just in time so somebody else can use them for a few years and make it their problem. I love the idea of an environmentally conscious Mad Max. These people ripping through the desert in Toyota Priuses. <laughs> <laughs> the doors are off. And they're hanging out. Yeah. Like, just, you can't hear any noise, though. It's just quiet. <laughs> just wielding like, a courgette. <laughs> I, but this is RC. These batteries are very different than a car battery that can't feasibly be replaced. Like an e-bike battery comes off in a few seconds. Right now, you can go onto Amazon or wherever, get some batteries maybe. I, th I don't think the challenge to keep your five-year-old e-bike running is the same as the challenge to keep your out-of-date e-car running, is it? I don't think so. I mean, like the new like the new Shimano motors can use the previous Shimano motor mounts. There are compatibility issues, and like there are some things that are going to be annoying for the consumer for sure. Um, but also these companies are setting up battery recycling programs, and, and they're putting the framework in place. But it's like with any new thing. There are some people that probably will have super annoying experiences trying to find replacement parts and that. But at the same time, if you're buying from a bigger manufacturer, it's unlikely they're just going to say, nope, you're out of luck. Like, we're moving on. Like as far as I can see, you know, you can still get eight speed chains for your eight speed XT drivetrain from 1998. So I think, I think you'll be okay. As long as you stick with a bigger brand, that's going to hopefully be around in a few years. All right. Let's go on to our next question. Oh, wait, RC, you got something to say? Well, I was going to say, does it's, do, do any of the three other luminaries here actually have a price on a replacement of 750 watt battery? And a or a bros motor. I mean, let's without a price. It's I don't know. I was I would be online right now looking, but my you can oh, hear yeah, my, battery is like a thousand dollars. Yeah, the, yeah, battery's expensive. A thousand dollars for a battery. Exactly. So what we're looking at right here is is for somebody to buy a used bike and then spend a thousand dollars for a, for a battery against buying a new bike as technology. And I mean, e bikes are basically where you know, V-twin Harley-Davidson bicycles were in the 1900s. We, they got motors on them. They still look like bicycles. And at some point, that technology is going to branch out and it's going to really start accelerating. And at that point, 
why spend a thousand dollars on top of the eight thousand dollars you spent for a you specialized when what you really want is the next generation which is three generations ahead so i think you're going to see a lot of um a lot of people a lot of the, a lot of e-bikes going into like you know sleep mode where they're like like uh, road bikes do after they get 10 flat tires they just turn upside down in somebody's garage and then they move on to a, another more exciting sport <laughs> you know <laughs> fortunately mountain bikes the tires stay stay aired up <laughs> batteries but four five six years from now it's probably fair to say that batteries will hopefully be less expensive maybe there'll be an aftermarket e-bike company specifically offering batteries all that's all they sell they just sell batteries different kinds of aftermarket batteries okay right so you, I mean, I the battery right. the like, battery in your rc's I- laughing but it's already happening <laughs> the, the battery in your iphone can be replaced but who does it i mean we're talking about a new generation of people that are like plug and play generations and the the bicycle people are going to be buying those things and, and recycling them, but the e-bike people are going to be moving on, I think. It's just I, a change love, in mentality. I love that implicit gatekeeping. The bicycle people and the e-bike is... I tip my hat. Right, We're RC, doing it again. <laughs> okay. is, I really like that. All right. The real ones are going to carry on. These posers... <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're gonna have to do a gatekeeping podcast. Ah! Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> special guest RC. <laughs> Fire away. Okay, let's go. Let, let's go to some normal mountain bikes here. This one is from Gers. He says, "What kind of bike setup would you guys pick for long distance rides? The area where I live lacks a trail network, so I've been considering." Some 80 to 100 kilometer rides on all sorts of dirt roads and paths. He says he's just bought an aluminum 130 millimeter trail bike and he wonders how he can get the most out of those distances. Henry Quinney, go. You know, I've been in this situation as well and it is super frustrating. Buy a gravel bike. I mean, you could basically, you know, alienate yourself from society, buy a gravel bike and just be below even e-bikers in everyone's opinion (laughs) no joking aside joking aside no it is super frustrating having to commute i mean when you say there's no local trail network i I mean i'm assuming that's not within driving distance i know this is a long maybe a a long-term plan but maybe start looking at getting permission to have a tinker and build your own trails because like well you know you've got the 120 mil travel bike but if you're just riding like bridleways for like 100k it's it's going to be pretty unexciting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you want to optimize it, you know, if you are going to just be riding gravel paths and things, you might as well put some skinnier tires on that that bike and just almost kind of make it into a a, a full. I don't he didn't say full suspension, but I'm kind of assuming it's full suspension. So full suspension gravel bike. I mean, you got to optimize it for your terrain. I don't think you need all that suspension if you're just cruising on on dirt roads. So yeah, skinnier tires, pump that suspension up firm. Maybe some kind of handlebar setup to just make sure you can be comfortable for those long distances. If that's if all your rides are that long, like you don't, um, there might be some changes you need to make there. Yeah, K- kudos to Gers for wanting to mountain bike, even though he has a long way to the trails. Apparently, on that so after field test, I um, we came back and I thought I wanted to ride all these bikes a lot just to make sure. I, you know, my assertions they were all absolutely why the reviews you know, are already done. <laughs> no, because. 
It's a little thing called professionalism, Levy. Oh, okay. About it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my friends are riding Lord of the Squirrels up in Whistler. And that GT Force, I pedaled it. it was I can't like, believe <laughs> you did this. <laughs> Squamish to Whistler. It, the noise coming out of the drivetrain. <laughs> you rode... You rode that GT Force yeah, with an horrible. idler pulley <laughs> on the yeah. highway from on the Squamish highway. to Whistler. Yeah. <laughs> then rode Lord of the Squirrels and then rode yeah. back. Yeah, it was a long day. Why man. didn't you could have just texted me and asked me for a ride? I would have just driven you there. Well, ah, shoulda, woulda, could. It was a nice day. Shoulda used wet loop. That's what I discovered. Shoulda used wet loop because <laughs> that thing was like the percussion segment to my whole ride. Just, whole <laughs> can time. we just? Can we just pause here and reflect back to when Henry was making fun of me, complaining about how loud and annoying idler pulleys were in oh, yeah. some field oh, this, test this video. Is, this is in lieu of an apology. You're not going to get one of those. But <laughs> yeah, this I don't want one. <laughs> yeah, well, I agree. When you're driving, when you're riding on pavement, an idler-equipped bike might not be ideal. You can concede mm. that point. But yeah. in the woods, there tends to be more movement, and you're not just like cruising on 40 miles of blacktop. So yeah. But good on you for that, Henry. That's a good effort. Hey, just so everybody knows, that is something like, I mean, that is like 90 kilometers of pavement there and back, not including the like 3,500 or 4,000 feet of climbing for that ride on yeah, dirt. It I had, had some great biscuits there, man. I found some oh, ginger nut biscuits in the British Isle of the supermarket. Fantastic. <sighs> Let's no move on. <laughs> no, no. For the record, I, I, I'm going to complain here. For the record, Mike Kaz has complained for for eons in print about how loud bikes are and how great these new like prophylactic things. They look like they come from an adult store on the chain on the chain stays and stuff that that silence chain noise. And here he is saying, you know, when you're in the woods, a high a high pivot idler bike, you know, grinding away like that is okay. I, I'm calling you out on this, Kaz. <laughs> Now noise is well, okay. It doesn't make noise when you're going downhill. <laughs> you just don't hear it. By the time this comes out, you'll be able to read. When this comes out, you'll be able to read my review of the latest heavy high pivot bike that I've been on. And I mentioned the noise. I'm still not, um, I haven't accepted noise on bikes yet. But if people want the benefits of, or, or the benefit, if they're trying to get to the benefits that a high pivot system delivers, I don't know if you can get around some extra noise. But that noise isn't as noticeable as on the highway. That's what I'm trying to say. Personally, I, if they could be dead the noise, silent, I'm all for that. The noise of the, the idler was less noticeable than the road rage coming from people's cars. That's <laughs> yes. something I would say in the GT's <laughs> yeah, that, defense. <laughs> did, did you wear your full face helmet or were you wearing your beanie? Oh, I went, of, of course, full 661 pressure suit, full face helmet, <laughs> goggles on the whole way. <laughs> Who, hey, which which pro EWS racer rode their downhill? Remy. Remy. Yeah, they dared, like, they bet Remy. I think they found $20 and bet Remy Govan that he could ride back home to Squamish from Whistler after a day in the bike park on his downhill bike without raising the seat. So he did that. So that looked pretty painful. God, of course, that sounds it's, terrible. Yeah, the era of, it's the era of social media. So they kept documenting him and people kept like taking videos of him as they were going by. Yeah. We did that state the sports survey about how little pro mountain bikers earn. But the fact that one of them was prepared to ride from Whistler to Squamish <laughs> on a downhill bike for 20 bucks says everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good illustration at that point. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Next question. This is, well, this is more of a statement. This is from the R. He says, 
interviews with CEOs and e-bikes. Why do you hate us, Pinkbike? The R, we haven't, we've never interviewed an e-bike, but besides that's that, next week. Yeah, next, that's next week. We're just trying to keep you guys in the loop. That podcast with Robin, that was us just talking about what might happen down the road. Wasn't received too well, but we said we were going to keep you guys in the loop and we did. So there you go. Confess, I, th- I thought that podcast was with Robin Thicke, the singer. I didn't realize <laughs> it might have got over better if it uh, was. Yeah, it's like, when is he going to talk about the music, man? <laughs> okay, our next one. This is from Cali Cartel. He says, "Can the PB podcast become a video stream podcast?" He says, "Outside must have funding for that." Kaz, what do you think about that idea? I don't know. Maybe I, we've talked about having, and maybe some of these could be live, where some people can kind of like live? chime in. And no, definitely not. They can live. heckle us. No, once in a while we could do that. They can heckle us. People do that. I've seen it, but I don't think we're ever going to be in a place where everyone is live because we're all remote. So it's not like Joe Rogan where people come into his fancy studio and eat elk meat or whatever. Like it's going to be a little different. But I think there's there could be some sort of like video component in the future. I don't want that to happen. I'm not going to lie, Kelly. Cartel. I don't. Everyone won't be. Yeah, because but once in a while. Yeah. Uh, okay, Codester, he says he's been riding for years. He just started getting into watching downhill racing. Uh, it's very fun to watch, but he has a few questions. Question number one, why there's so many whistles during practice? P.S. What a job blowing your whistle every time you see a rider. Henry, why are there whistles during practice? It's a couple of different things. One, if you're theoretically not the fastest person on the hill, you can tell there's someone behind you potentially. It's also to help marshals communicate to each other because you can't always have a line of sight, right? So then if you hear a whistle and you don't see a rider within like 30 seconds, you know they may well have gone down between the first and the second marshal. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question. Could someone explain the live broadcasts? They say live and the announcers are reporting as if it is real time, but there is almost always a minute or so skipped, usually near the top of the course. How does that work? Sure. So... The gap between the riders is often depending where you are on the schedule, but set, let's say it's three minutes. On a four-minute run, that means you can't ever broadcast a, a run in its entirety. So what they do is you you get the, essentially almost like, hmm, the curated bits from the first part of their run and the second part then directly goes into the live the, the live stream. Do you see what I mean? So you see yeah. them coming down from the top, that's all that's all recorded then it goes straight into the live of them on the bottom half of the course um but it is live to the commentators because they're they're watching the monitor in this in the studio you'll see them they'll, they'll have their like almost you know you see when they're recording they're watching the same footage you are and they're commenting on it in real time to them that makes sense and that kind of answers our other question too this is the last question from coachster he says, do they stagger the racers so there is more than one on a track at a time? Or does one person go once the person in front of them is finished? And the answer is, a lot of times there are multiple races on the track, right, Henry? Yeah, totally. That's, um, you ever seen the movie Three Minute Gaps? That's why it's called Three Minute Gaps, because I think it's when it goes to top 20, they go from two minute gaps to three minute gaps. I believe that's, that's what it is. All right. Next question is from Mikey J. Bikey. I like that username. He says he's been using the Seasucker mounts on his Fiesta ST for the past year and a half. That is a sick setup, by the way. Well, the thought of suction cups holding his heavy mountain bike on as he whips around corners is scary. He says they also haven't failed him yet. Uh, He says that I just need to embrace the suck. So this comment (laughs) comes from 
our our last Sorry, podcast. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, because they're suction cups. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> I, you know. <laughs> Our last podcast was our vehicle podcast, and we talked a bit about racks and stuff, and I said that I use a sea sucker rack on my Mini. Obviously, it's tricky getting bikes in there. It works. I said uh, before Mikey J. Bikey that I've never had the bike fall off. It's been really scary, that's for sure, and you need to check it. I mean, I think even Sea Sucker says you don't want to drive for more than a couple hours without stopping and checking the suction cups. They have a little visual marker, so if it's losing suction, this little plunger comes out, and when you see an orange line, you go, oh, shit, and you just push it back in a bunch and get the suction back up and embrace the suck. So, But still... <laughs> I they use that technology it. for lifting up whole these massive glass panes. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I know, you but you could lift up your mini. That's the question. Yeah. I mean, there's good we... videos of the panes falling. I like those videos too. When they, when they forget to check the suction cup thing. Well, you know, the the whole vacuum thing. If you look at the big picture, everything that's glued, everything that's brick and mortar, everything that's attached that's not actually welded, is just help being held together by a vacuum. So really it's a good concept because it's designed to be held together by a vacuum when, when this in the sea sucker thing. But really, if you're looking at a brick wall, it's being held together by a vacuum. It's kind of weird to think of it that way. Is that, yeah. Is that true? Pardon me? It's called, it's called mechanical, it's called mechanical grip, but you know, two surfaces, like you, when you glue something onto glass, the only thing that's really holding it on is the absence of anything else between those two. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. No, it's, it's the glue. The glue. The, but the glue. It's, it's, no, <laughs> it was mechanical, RC. It's, it, it's, it's mechanical if there's little fibers going into the glue. But most people, when we consider gluing and all that stuff, it's just, it's mainly just a vacuum. 14 point something PSI. Is that? RC's never been wrong before, so I'm no, just no. Gonna... It, this, <laughs> is, this, is a, this is a massive generalization. But a lot of the stuff that we consider when we glue stuff together or we you know, mortar something together, whatever, we're depending on a vacuum. It's just sea sucker okay. is is basically making it a pure concept. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll just put some super glue on the suction cup. No. Mini. Just <laughs> suction them oh, and then yeah. glue it on yeah. as well. <laughs> there, JB Weld. <laughs> there is also a, somebody out there makes a suction rack that uses an app on your phone. So while you're driving, you can look at your phone and to see and make sure that the suction is still suctioning. That's the thing with the sea suckers. Honestly, I'm driving down the road and I'm just goodness. like, I'm just like, <laughs> is the suction leaving? Is the suction leaving? <laughs> yeah, but now you're going to crash. You're going to crash because you're looking at your app and yeah. then your car will be totaled with your bikes. <laughs> you know, when I moved to Squamish, the fireplace in this house has an app. It doesn't just have a knob to turn it. It has a bloody app. An app for everything. And now there's yeah. one for your bike rack. It's well, too, too much. I'm not it's too down. much. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't. I, I'm not down with all the apps. But having used a sea sucker and done big road trips with it, I like the idea of being able to look at my phone and make to make sure that it's still sucking. Yeah, I like trailer hitches. <laughs> well, I'm not putting a trailer hitch on my car. So I think every time that you put your bike on a shonky bike rack, you just think like the week will perish. And you just think if it's meant to be. This bike won't be here when it comes back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Survival of the fittest. That's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's go back to some e-bike questions. We got a couple more of them. This is from, ah, oh, geez. I don't know how to pronounce this. GNFJN6HG9T. 
He fell asleep on the keyboard when he made his username. Yeah, or he sneezed or something. Gnv6hgft. He says, Kaz, this one's for you. He wants to know, how do you find places to ride e-bikes in the Bellingham, Washington area? From his understanding, they're restricted off most trails in that state. Are people riding on moto trails, unofficial trails, riding illegally? Kaz, you live in Bellingham. Where do you ride your e-bike? Where do you see or hear people riding e-bikes? Uh, yeah, you can look at Trail Forks. Trail Forks has a little thing that you can click on and shows you where bikes are or where e-bikes are allowed and where they're not. Uh, here in Bellingham, Larrabee State Park, they are legal, um, so you can ride those trails. And then they're not currently not legal on Galbraith Mountain. They're in talks to kind of figure out what the plan is for that. Um, they also don't enforce there, but for now, it's better to avoid that with your e-bike. And then, um, yeah, so that's the main place, Larrabee State Park. There are other um you know, moto trails that people go on and other spots, but yeah, won't go too deep in that, but Larrabee state park would be a good place to start. All right. Oh, this, this next one's for you, Henry, oh, man, this one's about standards. This oh, is yeah. From, yes. oh yeah. <laughs> this is from okay. I Hertzler Pinker. I Hertzler. He says he have a, he has a question about standard, the standard op-ed that may be valuable as a poll. Oh, question is this. If the whole industry, bike makers, fork makers, wheel makers, everybody, decided tomorrow that from now on there could only be a single front and rear axle standard for all the bikes, would you be for it? Even if it made your current stuff not compatible with the future? Uh, uh, no. No, I wouldn't. Of course I wouldn't. No, no, no. Can I say no, no, no. That seems selfish. No. Down the road, everybody can just use one axle, but you don't want that to happen because no, of because stuff. no, because that's that's not the that's exactly what I was getting at. Is that sadly mountain bikes are well the best thing about them is that they are inherently compromised, and when compromise is abound, that means you have to think of solutions that are complicated. And sadly, there isn't a simple answer to a complicated solution always, and so that's why standards change. Because if we did this now, then in 20 years' time, when we're all riding these really powerful e-bikes everywhere, the standard won't be right or whatever, you know? And that's the point is that times change and then standards have to change. Sadly, we don't have a one-size-fits-all option for everything to do everything we want it to in perpetuity. perpetuity. It's just, it doesn't work like that. And so I agree with you that it would be nice for tomorrow and for next year. But in five years' time, we'd probably go and, they would have said this about quick release too, you know? I absolutely agree. Um, about 10 years ago, everybody was crying like babies when they went from 20 millimeter fork standards down to 15. And like, it wasn't going to be stiff enough, but the rear axles were 12 millimeters. Like, really? The, the, the weight, the weight see, bias. I think their problem, the, it wasn't that they weren't going to be stiff enough. Everybody was angry that they had 20 millimeter forks and, and wheels and now they have a 15 millimeter fork. That's what they were mad about. No, well, it's the stiffest thing too. You still see people saying how much stiffer 20 millimeters would be, but 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 really, well, we all weigh 150 we... pounds, so I don't know if we get to say on that. <laughs> but 60. in in, in, uh, <laughs> in Henry's defense, you know, and gatekeepers, you know, there's more gatekeepers in the bicycle industry when it comes to technical stuff. Anyway. The the fifteen mil, the rear axle is really the weak link on a bicycle. The front axle has only got what thirty to forty five percent of the load in in the highest sense. So, 
there's a there's a there's a, a missing piece that we're looking at that that could probably be made made better. And, and like he says, in um, e-bikes, they're heavier. They're getting pushed pretty hard these days. Maybe they need a new axle standard that'll transfer over to us. E-bike axle standard. It, you know, it's a bit like saying, you know, would we if you could have only like one wheel size? But would anyone? You know, like anything 29? can happen. I'd be okay with that if everything yeah, was twenty nine. <laughs> but anything. But if if. But the point is that I'd be okay with that too. But ten years ago, would have said something different. And ten years before that, you know what I mean. And so, the point is that we don't know what's around the corner, and there's no point limiting ourselves with these arbitrary loyalties about which is right and which is wrong. Because a bike can take any shape; it doesn't necessarily need to be any one thing. And I think that sometimes, you know, you do get the thin end of the wedge and it is annoying but this idea that like i mean let's not go into the op-ed because i stand by it all but hell we haven't got enough time quite frankly <laughs> all right let's move on then from our standards our next question oh we're going from standards to chamois our next question this is from od89 uh, he says he recently started wearing shoes with a wide toe box for pain in his toes they've worked great do you know any mountain bike shoes that have a wide toe box? I think Giro makes some nice shoes that are pretty wide I've been wearing. I think they call them, I don't remember what they call them, but they make a shoe and it's a normal version. And then they also make a wider version. And I have pretty wide, flat, super flat, wide feet, actually. And so I was wearing these Giro shoes and they were great. Do you guys remember? Do you, do you guys have any recommendations for wide shoes? Specialized makes widths, three different widths. And that'd be a good place to go. Oh, there you go. And they're and they're uh, two. They're 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 uh, flat sh- sole shoe lasts for f and ever. I'd, I'd I'd say that's a good recommendation for any product you can put on your feet. Okay, now let's talk about chamois. So OD eighty nine also wants to know what chamois bibs provide support. He had an injury a few years back, and that means that he needs the support downstairs. Uh, but a chamois doesn't seem to provide that. A pouch, like you might say. He he then says, in my vast chamois experience, he wants to know what I would recommend. I think what I would recommend is actually not a chamois. Kaz, what about those Saks underwear things that you wear that have that little, that have the little fruit and uh, stick and berries pouch? Twig and yeah, Berry's pouch. I, I just know? love how this podcast has turned into e-bikes and chamois talk like every week. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Why are we still talking about underwear? Like, well, who cares? It's not that hard. Just try this, stuff. But this is a technical question. He's got an issue. Yeah, I'm an underwear like, reviewer. Yeah, like I've sounds like, Cass, like, has, a, like a, he get, You get your backup every time someone brings up chamois, Cass. Oh, yeah, but we just keep talking about it. It's like the word, the littlest thing. Well, he has an issue. For this guy, I know. It sounds like he might need to get old school jock strap if he has needs support downstairs. I don't, do they make those? Like, I remember those from like seventh grade gym class. I actually, I still own a jock strap. I have a jock strap in yeah, like my I, drawer. I, I'm not a qualified medical professional, so I'm not sure what he needs. But personally, yeah, something like the, the Saks underwear or like beneath or any of those ones, a little pouch in the front might have enough. They make like sports oriented ones for people that are gonna be running or doing activities so there's more support yeah that might do the trick do, do they do any with a chamois like if, if he wants a chamois and the yeah the, the dick pocket would the uh i think beneath does it's spelled like b3nth it's, it's one of those annoying names but i think they have one that has like a little bit of a, it's called like the north shore chamois or something like that 
that could do the trick maybe we should yeah. do a video That's where i get you to wear a chamois <laughs> i mean i've worn chamois i still have some they're not i'm not like i just don't need them but i can wear one it's fine yeah okay yeah can we do a chamois podcast next not, episode 82 no, no. everybody stay not, tuned not just one episode i'm thinking a series like, yeah we review like Shammy the week club <laughs> we just like I mean, try them out i do have my favorites and i have things that i like i could talk for yeah. an hour about chamois i'm sure i mean yeah sadly i, mean, I, could I certainly wouldn't listen but <laughs> yeah. we have two two listeners they're very excited <laughs> let, let us know in the comments if you want the chamois podcast everybody <laughs> okay so our next question this is from uh moffer he says, thanks for the awesome podcast. They're getting better every time. That's good. Uh, he also says, can you please do an entire podcast on what jobs are available and how to start working in the bike industry? We could probably do an entire podcast on that topic, but we're not going to. Instead, we're just going to answer this one question. Um, my answer, it's real easy, bike shops. Yep. My, my answer is the same. I recommend everyone, everyone that ends up in the industry in some form should at least have a few years of bike shop experience, but for jobs that don't involve crushing cardboard and polishing huffies, um, the Grow Cycling website has a good jobs board now. So if you go to Grow Cycling, it tells you know what's available, and it could be kind of a way to realize even what jobs exist, and then you can kind of fine tune your path to get that job. But uh, but yeah, bike shop's a great place to start. You know, anytime talking about how to get jobs in the bike trade, I get a bit nervous because I only got into the bike trade thanks to a severe lack of suitable candidates. So if all these people with qualifications are going to start coming in, that's going to steal my lunch. <laughs> Don't come in. There's no room. Every gatekeeping. <laughs> yeah. No, I think bike shops are a great way. And, um, you know, I think something that's really good is um, racing. Not necessarily racing there, but speak, like help out. You'll just make contacts and contacts can be really, really valuable. Right. RC, what was your first job in the bike industry? <laughs> Assembling uh, Schwinn beach cruisers with air wrenches for 75 cents a piece. And they were selling so fast that the moment you were done, the salesman would run in and grab it and take it out to the customer. So I worked all day. I had an air wrench for every bolt size on the bike. And if the wheels, if I couldn't straighten out the wheels in less than three minutes, they said, throw it over here in this pile and take a new one and put the tire on it. So basically, I was putting money, <laughs> Our... in... <laughs> I was putting money in the bank. I was, I was doing really well because I just hauled ass. Just whoop, 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 whoop. That was my first job in the bicycle industry. RC just building bikes with impact guns. Done. I, I, I was, I still, I, w I wasn't making anything as a fabricator. I was, I was barely making a living. So I went back to college. I needed a job at Fullerton bike shop. They were the big Schwinn store where I was going to community college. And they said, if you want a job, go back there and I'll teach you how to assemble bikes. And, you know, I could make a bicycle, but it, it was just mindless work. And I was like singing. I had classical music going on in the background and just boxes piling up behind the place. And, and that was my first job. And it, I worked my way Casper, up. Can you picture it? I Are know, you I seeing wish, it? I wish video cameras had been invented back then because that'd be amazing. Because <laughs> they had video cameras back then. No, that's like no. the world was still black and white. <laughs> well, there's film cameras. They had to set up those big, like, the cameras where, like, they put the hood over their head and just... <laughs> okay, brace yourself. Oh, man. Brace yourself. When I was going to middle school, there were only 48 states in the United States. 
I'll leave you with that. Now let's move on. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> you know, that the bike shop job, it teaches you not just like the basics of working on bikes, but if you get the right bike shop job with like a kick-ass boss like I had, it teaches you all sorts of life stuff and also working with people. Like, Kaz, you know how a lot of people say that your first job should be at McDonald's or like a fast food restaurant. Like it looks good on a resume. It teaches you a lot of those like life skills. I think the same thing could be said for working customer service in a bike shop, being a guy on the sales floor, talking to all sorts of different people. I think that's important. Yep. I agree. Thanks for the input, Cass. Yeah. Uh, Next one is PW3669. He says, maybe outside could pump some resources into this podcast. We need at least three of these a week. PW3669, there are going to be more PB podcasts at some point down the road. We're going to do another series, uh, a weekly podcast that is going to be like a long form interview thing. So stay tuned for that. It involves me doing more work though. So just sit tight. It might be a while. Wildwood Cycles Kaz says, in my opinion, people should be buying geometries based on speeds and trails they ride the most. What do you think? Yeah, that seems good. I mean, you don't need a the longest, slackest bike if you're going to be doing mellow XC rides. So yeah, makes sense to me. And it tends to go like the longest, slackest bikes tends to have the most travel. So it kind of goes hand in hand with what you would end up with. Yeah. What I should have said first is I think nowadays a lot of people buy bikes based on travel, don't they? Yeah, but they go hand in hand. Like there's not too many long travel bikes with super steep, short numbers. So like that's just kind of how it goes. Like a downhill bike is has the geometry to go with that travel. So your XC bike tends to have the geometry to go with that travel. We're starting to see like slacker, shorter travel bikes, which I'm a big fan of too. But um, yeah, I mean, if you're buying a bike, you kind of have to look at everything. I'd say uh, buy the bike that that you ride with your friends because, you know, some of us are solo. I mean, bicycle people came because they failed relationships and then they failed stick and ball sports and they weren't good at soccer and, and they ended up with cycling because you can do it by yourself and enjoy it. But most all of, of that us. is accurate. So, I'll see. I'm right here. Most For goodness of us. sake. <laughs> but, <laughs> like all of us. <laughs> but most of us. <laughs> if we all went out and tried to play baseball. <laughs> so, so you just. Can you we, imagine a cycling industry <laughs> baseball game? <laughs> <laughs> it would, it'd be amazing. So Just a bunch of loner weirdos. Like, <laughs> not good. Okay. So let me finish because this is really important. So when we hit rock bottom, we actually find friends there. And we usually surround, we, we ride the same trails and, and stuff. So buy the same kind of bike that you ride with all your friends. And that way, even if it's heavy, you'll be grinding up the hills real slow with your slow climbing friends. Or if it's really light, you'll be like suffering on the downhills because you're, you know, you bought a cross country bike like an idiot. But just really, this is about the adventure and about the people you're with. So, so just blend in, just buy a bicycle that that matches the guys you and the girls you ride with and and that you'll enjoy it the most. Let's keep it on geometry for a minute. Jibofo says, so if geometry rules all is a shorter travel bike like 125 millimeter optic with a slacker head angle, 65 degrees, more capable than a longer travel bike like a YT Jeffsy with 150 millimeters of travel but a 66 degree head angle. Okay. <laughs> Yes, that one degree head angle, it's going to just, that's no, unrideable. So but, yes, the Jeff C doesn't work and that optic is just going to no, snatch no, no, no. it. But what is, what is more 
capable. Let's say you're on a ride. You actually owned an, an Optic. You might still do. Yeah. I don't know if you still do. But let's say you're on a bike ride. You're in the Pacific Northwest. You're on some hairy shit. You're like, oh, sh- oh, look at this. You know, this is this looks gnarly. What are you going to feel most comfortable on? The slacker yeah. Optic or the steeper Jeffsy? The steeper Jeffsy because it's one degree, which isn't that big. It's a, it's a noticeable difference, but 150 mils is going to feel a lot nicer when you're smashing through rock garden compared to 125 mils yeah. of travel. Let's also mention too, I bet you that Jeffsy is going to be just a slack or maybe even slacker once it's sagged, possibly. That's true. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, like travel, like geometry only goes so far. Like you can't just give a little bike, downhill bike geometry, and then just think that it's going to feel the same as a bike with 170 mils of travel, even if that longer travel bike has steeper geometry. Like the amount of squish does help when you're hitting things. Like that's, that's just how it works. So, um, yeah, you don't, I don't, people get so hung up on all the little things, which is great because that's what we're here for. And it's fun to talk about that, but, um, there are limits to just how things work. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd say it's absolutely true. There's two things going on. I mean, we like, you know, levy, especially long and short travel bikes with, with long geometry. And that's awesome. But you got to remember in order to maximize those, you have to have the skills. I mean, if you, if you put a formula one driver in a go-kart at a local go-kart track, it would be that person would lap the crowd because, you know, they're just better drivers. So once you get to be a good bike handler, you can take advantage of a super light bike with, with a slack head angle and, and and ride it ride the hell out of it. But if you're just a regular That's exactly rider, why I ride them. <laughs> if you're a regular rider, you have you have average skills, which means that you think you're the best rider in the world. Get the extra travel. I mean, I ride a 150 bike, uh, a, a pivot um, switchblade, and it's got great pedaling, a little bit steeper head angle than everybody likes, but it's a great all all around bike. And when I make a mistake, it's got about 10 percent in the bank to save my ass. From that description. I'm going to guess. I'm actually guessing. I do not know. I'm going to guess that you're riding an Ibis. <laughs> no, he just said what it was. Oh, Ever. did he? I wasn't listening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was it an pivot. Ibis? No, it was no, a pivot. 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 But, but yeah. the Ibis, my favorite other bike would be an Ibis for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this next one, next one is from NS Curb. He has a tinfoil hat theory. He says... Super enduro type bikes will eventually begin to adopt small motors and batteries just enough to offset their weight and pedaling inefficiency, bringing them back to the feeling of efficiency that a lightweight trail bike would have on the climbs. So Kaz, we did have that specialized lightweight e-bike. Do you see a future where things are things are like that? I mean, I think that kind of bike will get more popular. Like the whole goal is going to be, I imagine, to have lighter lighter e-bikes that mimic that feel but um yeah i mean that's going to be a thing i guess but i don't know if they're going to specifically like start with a non-motorized bike and then put a motor on it like they're kind of being developed in separate sides of the thing i don't know just to get the levels of um self-righteousness way back up high in this podcast if i'm if i may (laughs) do you think right say this does happen and that's the that's that's the that's the existential threat to the long travel bike, right? They're all going to become motorized because that's what people want. Do you, will you still ride long travel bikes even if they have a motor or will you go do something else? To me personally? Yeah, yeah let's, I, go for you. let's go for you. <laughs> I'd still ride them because I think that that, would, that could make it 
that you could not, you wouldn't need to shuttle. Like I prefer pedaling over most things like over shuttling. Like obviously I, I do have a good time when I shuttle. I have a great time when I ride chairless, but I like pedaling. So if more people are pedaling and not shuttling, that seems kind of cool to me. Like, yeah, I know it kind of sucks getting passed by a bunch of trucks on a road where you could all just be pedaling. Even if you're on, if you do end up on e-bike. Get to be honest, Kaz, that answer's not quite pious enough for me. Levy, mm. what would you say? <laughs> <laughs> next question. <laughs> <laughs> All no. right. This next one is from... <laughs> what, RC, you have something else? Well, I have a theoretical question. I said, you know, you basically said, if you, if you had this bicycle with just enough power to make this heavy enduro bike feel like a regular bike when you're going uphill, is that going to take over the world? And it's like, oh, it could. But then if you have just enough power to power a downhill bike up the hill and feel like a normal bike with, you know, dual crown forks and and gigantic uh, shock and stuff, well, that would be the same thing, wouldn't it? And if the bike, yeah. basically, I, mean, the, I think that's the, kind of the goal, right? Like the, the motor can equalize anything go. you want. So if now, if you want to down, if you want to any bike, if you want to put any tire on it, say I want a, I want a four point six tire with with inserts on both ends and twenty nine inch. Well, let's just add a little bit to the motor. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? Is getting rid of, of getting yeah. rid of the disadvantage yeah. of weight and technology, adding weight and technology to it to a thing by adding watts to the motor. I mean, that's what we're doing. Where's the end? Do there isn't. Something... It's just going to be fun. Is there, is there any way that we can strap some kind of sc- screen to the handlebars that's going to entertain me whilst I climb, even if I'm climbing quicker? <laughs> Don't you some of you bikes come some... with the I, the Scott Patriot comes with that, doesn't it? I, I think so. <laughs> I basically. I don't want to be reminded of the sensation of pedaling a bike uphill whatsoever. And so I demand on-flight entertainment. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that like Oculus and those virtual reality companies really just, <laughs> like I hope they take over and everyone just stays inside. Like there's you know, like the whole like opt-outside thing. I'm up for opt-inside. If everybody could stay inside and play video games, I can just be out there pedaling along. Gatekeeping. Very happy. Gatekeeping. Yeah. But they'll have fun. They'll have like video games. I bet video games are so good now. Like, they can just watch VR or whatever, and I'll go ride outside, and it's going to be peaceful, and it's going to be nice. What about e-bike training videos on your tiny little screen? It's like, okay, guys, we're going up in turbo. Let's drop it down to, to eco and do some <laughs> do some real hard efforts. Come on. Doom touch. Doom touch. Yeah. Right, yeah. That's what I want. Out of the saddle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just basically, Jazzercise with RC. <laughs> yeah. You can entertain yourself on the uphill. Okay. Let's put it back in turbo and get some rest. All right. Get that heartbeat down. Oh, this has gone off the rails. <laughs> okay, let's. I got to steer this back to questions. We've been at this for an hour and a half. I'm going to keep you guys here for at least another 10 minutes. So I can see the eye rolls. This next one is from Vay Edwards. He says he enjoyed our honest answers to what budget bike we'd be willing to ride, but he would love to ta- hear us tackle this question without discounts, everybody. If you had to buy or build up a personal bike right now, what would it look like? So let's keep it somewhat quickish. Casimir, you go first. Um, yeah, I think the same answer I probably had when we were last talking about this. That common saw meta TR probably would be the one I get. Okay. And I'd have to say more about it. What's he say? Build up personal bike. Yeah, just that one. Uh, just depending on my budget, but they have even the base models are pretty well spec'd. Henry? Common saw. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> you guys are so boring. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I can I can explain that. Yeah, it's cheap. You don't need to. It's cheap. And also, <laughs> yeah. but it's cheap, but it's also not. 
how can I say that isn't going to be bad? There are some shitty. bikes that like some direct consumer bikes that have like a curse on them. Not only will the frame fall apart, but any part you put on there will disintegrate also. Common Sal seem to be separate of that. And that's why I'd go for them as opposed to another brand. RC? Uh, that's a hard one for me. I would, I, I like the, the entry level Ibises right now. I mean, I've, I've, I've ridden two of them. The XE is, might be my, my choice really, but the entry level bikes the you can buy a, you can buy a 150 millimeter Ibis for a reasonable price. And the handling is just on the money and the climbing is good. So that's, that's my choice. I'm not sure. On you wouldn't the, be tempted by the new Canevo. Absolutely not. Come on. <laughs> the new budget Canevo. I think they have one that's only 10 grand now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if I was going to buy an e-bike, I would have, I would absolutely buy an aluminum frame, you know, lower middle level because, hey, you know, all the, all the geometries there, all the suspensions there, it's, 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 you're going to use it for three years and sell it before the battery dies. You know, why spend 13 grand when really you're, you're doing laps and having fun? Okay. This next question is a pretty good one. This, I think this is actually the best question out of all of them. It's from D Mackie, a herd. I think he says, what are your favorite non-mainstream or underdog brands in the mountain bike world? He says that we see a lot of Rock Shocks, Fox, Ram, Shimano. Uh, but what about the other guys like Magura, DVO, MRP, etc.? Um, Sun Tour suspension was just on a bike that won the men's Olympic cross country race, uh, which sort of reminded him that this would be a great question. He'd love to hear some opinions. Kaz, what are some of your favorite underdog brands? Uh, I think for brakes right now, I'd go with the the Manitou Dominions. Oh yeah, sorry. Same company. Yeah. Hayes, Manitou are the same. They're under the same umbrella. But um, yeah, so those Hayes Dominion brakes, um, I think they get my pick. And even the Manitou suspension too, that the last measure, the measure expert, I had pretty good luck with, and it's a more affordable option of the fancier one. And I had a good, good time on that. So yeah, I'd go with that group. Henry? Um, I always had a big soft spot for trick stuff. Who I know are super premium. <laughs> but those guys are so Henry and his two thousand cool. dollar breaks, everybody. <laughs> I guess you know, no, he's he's he found the loophole in the question. I'm with you now, Henry. Because the yeah. person didn't mention anything about budget. Yeah, did <laughs> yeah. no, I want trick stuff in Nintendo. My favorite my favorite thing about trick stuff is that when there was a German magazine that did a brake test and they had a jig, and they said that the new Maguras were three percent more powerful than the Diratissima. Oh, so German. And most people would be like, ah, oh, probably our data is different ever. Trick stuff were like, we're going to make the Maxima, which is 25% more powerful. <laughs> <laughs> I just think they're great. So passionate yeah. about, you know. That'd okay. Cool. That's good. Oh, yeah. Also, I should, I want to change, but I thought this is more like budget and I don't know. I'm going to change mine. I still do like those Hayes Dominion brakes a lot, um, but I, I like the trick stuff ones also. And then the EXT stuff. Like, I just really like what Franco and them are doing over there. Like, it's super expensive, but Franco, just like the back and forth communication with them is super interesting. He used to design suspension for the, the Williams F1 team back in the day. Like, he knows a lot of stuff. Um, another brand that I really like that's sort of, I really like Vittoria Tires. I've oh, got yes. a big soft spot for them. Yeah, me too. I don't shut up. I, I just, I think they're great. And um, yeah, and I will talk about those Mazas too much. To anyone that will hear me. RC, who do you like? You know, 
<laughs> well, I've always liked McGrew brakes because they're so so damn simple and light. And they, you know, but I've I've kind of like shifted away from all the smaller brands, uh, with the exception of Marzocchi. I I've gone back to that original Marzocchi the fork because I just like the the damping on it. It's just so simple, and I expected I'd get more performance out of other forks, but. So I'm kind of a Marzocchi fan again, but I've drifted back to um, now that I have to pay full retail for everything. I've drifted back to the real the standards, and actually, I just I just started riding a, a SRAM drivetrain again, and I've I'm kind of excited about going back to their gear spacing compared to the Shimano I've been riding for a long time. So I'm I'm going retro. Maybe it's my age, but I'm drifting back to what works and what I can be comfortable with in the long run. I, I'm the fancy stuff is starting to, to be. I don't feel like SRAM's an underdog. It's they're not an underdog. What I'm saying <laughs> is, I I was the guy that championed all the underdogs for my whole career. And the shocking mm. part is, I'm looking at mm-hmm. this guy in front of me in the mirror, saying, "Why are you riding such standard parts right now, instead of all the fancy stuff that you used to absolutely love?" I mean, everything on my bikes was was alternative for so long, and now I think that. I'm I'm going back to the to the center again. For me, I would definitely agree with you, Henry. Vittoria tires, I like them a lot. Um, also, MRP suspension. They're forks. What was the name of that fork that I reviewed, Kaz? The ribbon. Yeah, I liked it with the twin tube damper. That thing worked extremely well. Also, E13 components as well. Um, they do some good stuff. I know they, they don't get a very good... Re- People get so angry in the comment section about Ether Twin stuff. And I maybe, have not had good luck with their stuff. Maybe it's justified, but I've had good luck with a lot of their components. Um, Henry? At Mont Saint Anne in 2018, I, I don't think we broke a one rim between four riders of those E13 carbon ones. They're bloody good. Yeah. like They're really, really, really good. We're going to get a lot of comments now disagreeing with I, us. But, but the thing is... They can they can say they can say that all they want, but like if a rim doesn't break a Monsanto, <laughs> yeah, that's true. What about also, their tires, Henry? Are have you ever used their tires? I, I've actually yes, I have actually. Yeah, I've used the yeah. front one, that big big meaty thing. Yeah, I've I've liked the rubber too. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that like with E thirteen, and it's maybe maybe it's coloured by my risk, you know full disclosure. They did sponsor the team I used to work for, so there was kind of a working relationship there. But they always seemed to me, at least, and the stuff that we used to get it right in the end. You know, if you can with the with the various rims or whatever, like there was a lot of various iterations. Iterations. I keep I said that wrong in all the field test videos. Iteration. Yet I'm product. the guy they, who gets picked on for saying words wrong all the time. <laughs> yeah, it was Simon simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I was giving you shit. So yeah. Like would, Cane Creek suspension is another one for me, and TRP brakes as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, TRP for sure. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I like that. The new helm, the helm is good, and yeah, those TRP brakes are the bigger, thicker rotors. And yes, yeah, so there's lots of other options out there, which is nice. We're in a good spot. All right, I've had you guys for an hour and a half. Can we go through a few more questions before I set you free? Sure. Yeah. All right. Let's keep going. Okay. This one is from. Avalmina27, he wants us to break down the differences between air and coil shocks. He's heard all the cliches, coils are more supple, more linear, but how will upgrading to a coil from an air, I assume, change the way his bike feels on the trail? 
podcast. Just a lot of it depends on how you're like the kinematics of your bike, because some bikes can work super well with a coil shock. They have enough uh, end stroke progression that it won't bottom out all the time. So you can run a, a appropriate spring rate. So you can have it like, you know, you can have that goal of nice and supple off the top and then it does ramp up smoothly through it. But some bikes you put a coil shock on and you end up needing to ramp up a bunch of spring rates. So you kind of start, start, start to lose some of that suppleness, but overall coil shocks do tend to have better grip than an air shock just because the the breakaway force is lower. It kind of hugs the ground better. They're not quite as poppy. And these are kind of broad generalizations, but overall not as poppy, kind of more, um, you know, stuck to the ground, but you can tune it so you can get plenty of pop. Uh, they'll be heavier, like half pound heavier, probably for a spring compared to the uh, air shock. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I agree with everything you said, but on a trailer enduro bike with a coil spring, do you not find that that, because they, because they require such a low amount of breakaway force to get into the stroke, peddling them, yeah. It just can become pretty laborious. It, like, it can for sure. Yeah, it depends on the suspension design. But there are bikes, yeah, where you if you you want to get one with the the pedal switch on it, I would say because yeah, they can just kind of even then. I mean, there's so much grip, and it, you know, it can, it can be a really good thing. But actually, I quite like the high amount of breakaway force needed higher on an air shock just for the just just for a bit of bit of pedal platform, and it makes a, for me it makes a large amount of difference. Yeah, and then the ability to fine-tune air shocks as well. Like, it is kind of nice to be able to bump up or down just a couple PSI, PSI where sometimes you could still even find yourself between two uh, coil springs, like if they only come in 50 or 25-pound increments, depending on the company. So you might be in that in-betweens. You have to settle on, you know, 27% sag instead of 30%, which will be fine, but it, it might, it's a little bit harder to optimize a coil shock uh, compared to air. Yeah, I agree that modern suspension, the kinematics are so tuned to the to the beginning of beginning stroke for pedaling and the middle stroke for support and the end so you, you don't bottom out. And with an air shock, you can control the spring rate and the preload. It stay right in that zone. But you have to have a perfect coil shock. You have to have the spring rate absolutely perfect. And it, that might change. I mean, you might gain 10 pounds or you might throw a pack on for a full day and now you're your coil spring isn't right. So if you have the money and the time and you want the perfect suspension and you're willing to put in the time to get exactly the right spring, it's cool. But the air shock, I mean, if you, even if you look at the pro ranks and downhill, it's starting to fade pretty quick, pretty quick. Air shocks are getting good. And because they're the negative spring technology is, has solved that problem with air shocks having a preload no matter what it's just the air pressure where spring you can put it on the ground and it has zero preload at full extension that's otherwise it would grow and it doesn't so it's a fundamental difference that air shock makers have finally come to terms with and now they're just more versatile all right our last question is from riding and wrenching i think we got through about half of these guys yeah, that's a lot i feel like we answered lots of things yeah we're gonna have to do another one yeah, we will. People can put more, more questions in the comment section and we'll save them up. Yeah. Less, no chamois questions, though. We're done with those. <laughs> Give me your chamois questions, everybody. I'm your chamois expert. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our, our last question is from Riding and Wrenching. Uh, he says, what method do you prefer to clean your drivetrain? What kind of products are your favorite to use? I'm going to answer this one first and then I'll toss it to you guys. My absolute favorite product is an old pink bike shirt and a can of brake clean from Lord Co. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice going. The harsh chemicals. <laughs> it gets me a little buzzy, gives me a little yeah. buzz, which is nice, you know, while I'm cleaning the bike. And it also 
strips all of the crap from the chain. Sometimes I'll take the chain off and I put it in a little Tupperware container. And then I fill the Tupperware container with brake clean and put the lid on it and I shake it real hard. And I let it sit for a little while. Uh, but the thing is then you got to remember that brake cleaner, it strips the lube out of everything in your rollers, in, in between all the little grooves. So if you're going to go that route and be that aggressive with the brake cleaner, you do need to do a really good lube job after. Speaking of lube jobs, Henry, how do you clean your drivetrain? <laughs> I, um, I, I'm going to get some people aren't going to be happy with this. I just use like fairy washing up liquid on everything. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I know it's got like, people say it's got a high amount of sodium, so it could lead to rusting. But I think actually most stuff, if left in a damp place or not dry, will rust. I do everything in washing up liquid. I'm really particular about my washing brushes. Washing up liquid? What is this? Yeah. Like dish like Dawn dish soap. Oh, or something like that. yeah. That's because it cuts grease. Just cuts grease. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's made it's biodegradable. Yeah. It's like cheap. It like you get one bottle that lasts you like a lifetime. But I'm particular about which brushes I use and no cross-contamination and which order I wash things in so I don't get the dirt from the drivetrain anywhere near my brakes, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like the thought, I know it's great. You get various liquids of various colours to do various cleaning jobs. Bloody hell's teeth, they're expensive. For like a dollar, you can get a life supply of washing up liquid. Yeah, <laughs> I use that. I don't yeah. get it. And What's, I don't. Where does it, where does it, yeah. what? <laughs> I'm in the same boat. It's funny that you say that, Henry, because I just spent a load of money on car detailing stuff. And it, I was like, this is, I'm pretty sure this is just like some dish soap crap and some other stuff. But like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll try it. But yeah, it's, some of the stuff's crazy expensive. Kaz? Yeah, I just use diluted Simple Green. But even then, I don't use it that often. I use water, just plain old water. And then I lube my chain. Like if you have a good chain lube and you stick with the same one, like Dumontek is the one I use. And I basically, if you ride your bike, it'll clean itself. Like your drivetrain stays pretty clean as long as you're not like globbing it on and just going crazy. But um, yeah, my drivetrains don't get that dirty. It depends where you live too. But I'd say overall, it's rare that I'm doing the full, like what you're doing, brake cleaning and chain off and stuff. Just like a little bit of simple green and some water. And I'm a little Levy, pickier than you, Kaz. More Levy doesn't ride his bike, so he's got to feel like he's riding his That's bike. That's true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's like, I got to clean my chain today. I can't ride. <laughs> I didn't ride, but my drivetrain's real clean, everybody. <laughs> Just call and get a rest day. Yeah. <laughs> RC, how do you clean your chain? All right. The, the chains I take off, and I and I do what you do, because really what we have in the, in the Southwest is just super fine dirt. So it gets into the rollers and everything. So I run the chain in a, in a lacquer thinner. Usually it's pretty harsh, but it gets all the stuff out and I, and I lube it separately and let it sit. But as far as the bike goes, I'm a, an addict for that little park tool, uh, gr- uh, uh, chain ring, um, excuse me, cassette brush. I'm, I love that thing. And the other one is a toilet brush or excuse me, the brush that you use to clean the loo in a uh, Brit speak. There it is right there. And, it, <laughs> and, uh, and that's it. I just use the toilet brush to get in all the cracks and everything like that. And then just wipe the thing off, put the chain back on. Cause it'll be dry. And the, uh, quick link has changed, changed the life of chains. I think it's extended them considerably. Yeah. Quick link. And then I use the little green one up quick link pliers. They work, yeah. they work very well. Got How set. do you lube your chain RC? Each I, I lube each link at a time. Some people just spray a whole bunch of stuff on it, but I just go across the thing because it's really the only thing that moves is inside the chain. The rollers stay fixed to the sprockets. They don't move. It's the pin right. inside the, the, 
that does. So I make sure I get it in, across there at inside and let it hang by itself and then put it on and go ride. Yeah. Do you have a favorite chain lube? You know, right now I'm using a Park chain lube and and Motorex. The Motorex uh, City chain lube is light enough, so it does pretty good at the Southwest. Right. Kaz, what chain lube are you using? Yeah, Dumontech, the lighter kind. They make like a yellow and a green, but I go yellow because I reapply fairly frequently, but it'll last through a wet ride and it's fine. You love that stuff, don't you? Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Henry, do you have a chain lube that you prefer or are you like, hey, this one's free? Uh, no, I use, I use the muck-off stuff. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, um, same here. I think, although with these high pivot bikes, they burn through dry lube, man. You've got to use wet lube. And that's where the noise comes from. With the wet lube, they're actually pretty quiet. On that ride up to Whistler, I had dry lube on there. Honestly, it felt like I was being chased down the road by Ringo Starr. It was you, you, you did do a 150-kilometer mountain bike ride, so... Yeah, but dude, <laughs> but 10k out the gate, it was just... Ah, Wait, are you awful. are you saying that idler bikes mm-hmm. require more chain lube? They require wet lube. The chain's bigger, it needs more lube. Yeah. But no, yes, Henry is right, though. They are they do require different what, lube or more frequent doing? reapplication of it. What's that doing is you put wet lube on bef- the day before, let it set, then you put dry lube on so it doesn't nothing sticks ridiculous. to Ridiculous. Yeah. Talking shit about idlers seems like the perfect place to end this podcast, everybody. Levy, no. No, 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 no. Don't you. I'm going to come around to your house and just shout profanities through the letterbox. You and everybody else. You and everybody else. (laughs) All right. We covered all sorts of things. We maybe even answered your question. And if we didn't, post it again under this podcast. And we might get around to it in a future Q&A episode. But also maybe not. And speaking of the next podcast, if you've been on the homepage lately, you've probably seen a ton of field test review videos of enduro bikes and e-bikes. There's also the Huck to Flat that's coming and Possible Climb, Efficiency Test, all those things. So with that in mind, next week's show is going to be all things field test. I'll have Matt Beer and Henry Quinney on to talk about how the bikes rode, good surprises, letdowns. We'll also talk about the Huck to Flat carnage. The Impossible Climb, Efficiency Test, and that 18,000-foot battery test that I did. So, if you have field test, field test questions about the bikes, or how we tested the bikes, or anything else, put them under this podcast, and we might answer them. We'll see you guys next week. Mm-hmm.